anyway, so Marx has helped me a lot over the years, and he's a described self-described as a recovered borderline and self-aware and helping codependents. Anyways, and I think maybe Mark, you could introduce yourself a bit too. Uh, I I think that that pretty much wraps it up. Um, <laughs> I know an awful lot of people are skeptical about whether or not a borderline can actually recover. And I think as best as can be, I'm about as aware of those maladaptive neural pathways as anybody ever could be to the point of uh, thinking back over most of my life. And when I think of 50 years as a card carrying borderline, I feel like I'm watching a movie about somebody else. And it's just, uh, I have a rough time wrapping my arms around that, but I'm thrilled to be able to say that I have arms to wrap around it, so. Feels like watching a movie or yourself. Is that a common BPD trait or depersonalization, dissociation um, or what? It's, it's not really disassociation or depersonalization. It's um, if you've been successful in rewiring your brain, the old wiring belongs to a inauthentic false sense of totally defended self. Nice. If you've made the decision to never live defensively, period, bar none, which I think if someone really wants to recover from a disorder, all disorders are emotional defense. And if you've decided that as an authentic human being, you don't need to be defended, then that decision is already made for you. So every situation that comes up, you've already made the decision. And it might be a monumental one and it may be a little bit extreme, but I think for people that want to get past this order, they have to make that decision. So therefore, those old neural pathways simply don't get a vote. They don't. That's it. The decision's already been made. So is living in a disorder, in some sense, a total depersonalization? I'd say closer to that, yes. So that when you are living an authentic self and you think about living an, an inauthentic one, it's like that guy's an actor. And it feels like you're watching a movie about someone acting his life instead of living it. I like this pointer, but this is a hard sell for codependence, wouldn't you think or not? Or this is what I find. People are afraid of negative emotions. They like their defenses. How do you, how can I pitch letting down the pitch, defenses? How can you pitch not living defensively? Yes. <laughs> because, because living lovingly, if you can bear the, re, if you can bear the vulnerability. <laughs> living Look at Susie laugh. See, she's laughing at your pitch. That's cause... because it's the, the nail on the head. Oh, because it's precise. Okay, keep going, Mark. Vulnerability, yeah. Living lovingly. That's the yeah. Living lovingly feels so good compared to living defensively 
that, you know, once you've done it and once you get good at it and once you learn how, uh, once you learn, you know, it's a, it's not even a question of turning the other cheek when someone's acting like a dick, that's their choice to act like a dick. Whether or not you act like a dick back is your choice. And to me, that choice has already been made. And it gives you such a sense of peace because you don't have to wrestle about whether or not you're going to react this way or that way. You, you've already made that decision. And it doesn't mean you're a doormat. And it doesn't mean that, um, it doesn't mean that you have, uh, uh, you're going to be a permanent victim, quite to the contrary. It's the exact opposite of that you are simply not going to be victimized by other people's stuff ever. It's a really different way to live, but it really works for me. I like the framing. Yes. And that's borderlines sometimes have amazing language to be able to frame it properly and make a good pitch. And uh, that's a nice reframe. Uh, did you have to hit rock bottom or something to come to the uh, conclusion? Yeah. Uh, my rock bottom was like none other, my friend. <laughs> That's the other challenge. If people well, haven't rock, rock, hit rock bottom, they're not ready to do something yeah. so dramatic. Well, I had, uh, so you have to understand, you have to picture me with a dark beard and long curly hair down to my waist. And I'm, I'm an artist and I'm showing in New York and I'm having shows on 57th Street and Madison Avenue and I'm doing parties in the Hamptons and Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm having a life. And in the meantime, I'm just running on adrenaline. So it was just nonstop. I also dance and I've danced professionally. I built my own house, which is right there. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the back of it. So you had tons of success living large, recklessly. Absolutely. Man, I'll tell you, I built a grandiose sense of self that was validated all the time. By the world. Yeah. Absolutely. You learned and the system economically and you lived large and you got tons of supply. So right. why change? Right. Well, and it was even worse than that because the paintings that I did were these huge, dramatic, multi-layered, deep, um, sort of Beethoven's fifth kind of artwork that came from the depths of my disorder and they were selling for big money. So I was getting validated for my disorder. So what motivation did I have to change? Uh, except yeah, that's that, harder, yeah. Except that all that adrenaline and all the cortisol that comes behind the adrenaline to keep it all going will eventually destroy your metabolism. And that's what happened. So by the time my late 40s rolled around, man, my body was busy, busy destroying itself. So it was, it was a rock bottom first. Uh, well, I won't go through the whole story because it's just way too long. Mm -hmm. At any rate, the crux of it though was that I ended up with a metabolic disorder that was associated with a B12 deficiency and I had stage four pernicious anemia and I was neuropsychotic and I had the ataxia gait and I nearly died. I was about 
probably two or three months away from being dead. And that makes you pretty anxious. And all of a sudden, all that adrenaline felt more like just pure anxiety than it did adrenaline because uh-huh. I, didn't, I didn't even have the mind space or the body space to be able to do what I did anymore. And that felt horrible. I just couldn't keep the balls in the air. So the pernicious anemia and the B12 was, was uh, diagnosed finally, it took forever, but it was diagnosed and a year later I was still anxious and people were thinking, well, the B12 was an issue in the brain. So let's, let's take a look at your brain. So a endocrinologist at Georgetown University sent me to a medical psychiatrist to see if I had any brain damage from the pernicious anemia. Yeah. Well, I spent an hour and a half with him and he looked at printouts of some of my paintings and he just said, you have the most complicated mind I have seen in my career. Oh, the <laughs> paintings said, gave him a clue. Yeah. Then he looked into your brain, brain scan. Well, and just talking for an hour and a half and I said, so what drugs do you have for me? He said, for you, I have nothing. And I said, <laughs> Excuse me? And he said, no, he said, no quick fix. You have to understand that your issues are global. Everything is connected to everything else. And I can give you something to numb you, but it won't do for you what you want done. So Mm -hmm. I said, okay, what's next? And he said, incredibly intensive psychotherapy after we get you neuropsychologically tested. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm into pain, so bring it on. And uh, bring it on. Nice. And Please. that's when internet shuts off. Yeah. Because we talked about pain. Find out. Oh my God. Oh, you're Did back. Find out. Oh my God. So we, but, yeah, go ahead. We lost you at uh, bring it on the pain and I guess all the details after that we missed <laughs> oh no oh no we can't hear you we see Did you, you mute now. yourself by accident are we there I hear you now okay Talk again. okay keep going well okay so I had to be neuropsychologically tested which is a big IQ test looking for brain damage yeah. So it turned out as an artist, you know, everything you would expect to be above board was above board. But in the social verbal IQ area, which is basically your internal dialogue about relationships and how things work, mm-hmm. I was a savant. <laughs> I was, I was the highest scores they had ever seen. The highest and, ever. Okay, that's great. Um, so what? It never made me happy. And, yeah. Um, so he said, yeah, but it probably did keep you alive, which was interesting because I always had this view from a mile above. So that's why as a borderline, I would never do anything too crazy because I realized I'd be worse off if I went with my impulses than if I didn't. So, that so you was have that. meta. Exactly. A lot of borderlines I don't think have meta. Is that You're your observation right. too? Yeah. yeah. And that makes me really good at mentoring disorders. Mm-hmm. But it also was very humbling because I realized 
that not everybody could do what I did because I actually asked the neuropsychologist that actually uh, administered the test if she would become my therapist. And she said, well, I don't know anything about borderline. And she said, listen, your IQ test just said you can run rings around me if you want. And I said, but I don't want, I want to get fixed. And she said, you do the work and I'll keep you on track. And what I realized though, and I thought everybody could do that. So I started consuming everything I could from Freud to Stephen Mitchell through Otto Kernberg into modern writers. I just yeah. consumed it all, including early childhood trauma. Nice. And all the rest of it. And I started putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And it was like, okay, this makes sense. I get this. It intellectually and understanding it emotionally were two very different stories. So to make a long story shorter, so I was six months into therapy when the stock market crashed in 2006, uh, 2008. So all of my false sense of self at, that included being an artist and being this and being that and being financially successful and all the rest of that stuff, it all came tumbling down all at once. And so in the midst of learning what I needed to learn intellectually, mm. then it was time to feel it emotionally. And that was where the rubber really met the road. That was scary. And in fact, that was to a place where I did not think I could continue. I called my psychologist who was on vacation at the time and I said, um, I don't see any options here. The only one I see is maybe hypnosis and try and take this away. Yeah. And so she referred me to a uh, hypnotherapist who worked in her office. And I went to see him and I said, uh, I'm out of options. And he said, let me take you into your pain. Wow. And he did. He made me find the abandoned three-year-old. And oh, I can tell you that. Yeah. Every borderline and in fact, every personality disorder has an abandoned child that was traumatized that they had to then separate themselves from or split from in order to survive. And create and, a false self. Yeah. And correct. The abandoned child is really sad. That abandoned, that abandoned, you know, it's interesting. The, every borderline, if you ask them, they will mm. tell you of a hollow space that's in their chest. They really feel like there is a physical hollow space in their chest mm. now that is the source of anxiety when you lose your breath and your heart is beating like mad it's a disassociation from that part of your body and it's curious because we all assume that that's a dark space that we can't go near and that's where i found my child it's that's where you found your child 
So you disarm the judgment or the fear of this hollow space. And somehow yeah. it, that made you more whole. But Well, it was a long process. And when I talked to the hypnotherapist about this, he said, instead of taking this away, let's go into your pain and let's unite yourself with yourself. I didn't have much respect for him when we started, but boy, <laughs> did I when we were done. He knew what he was dealing with, and I was really impressed. But that was the beginning of my journey, actually. That was, this is all that was in just the, the very beginning. beginning. Yeah. So you had other more painful. Well, I, had to, I had to merge the child with the adult. Oh, yes, that too. That's, that, that's the big one. <laughs> that's the big one. I'm still yeah. working on that. I'm sorry? I'm still working on that. Yeah, that's I a tough. A, I have a hole uh, inside me in the shape of my brother who committed suicide and I'm trying to uh, merge myself with the abandoned child as well. And it's big and it's hard. It's really hard really 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 hard and you know I've mentored hundreds of people at this point in the last 12 years and that's one of the things I do besides artwork now is I am a professional mentor because what I realized was and I thought about going back and getting my degree in psychology and blah 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 but I thought you know what for most people, that doesn't work. What really works is having someone that is on the other end of a phone line or the other end of a text or an email exactly at the point you need it. And that's the work of a mentor and not the work of a therapist. And having traveled this journey through, it put me in a pretty good position to be able to discern what the needs are in the moment because basically I'd lived all those moments they weren't they weren't I mean they're always scary but um, I wasn't scared of going there with people so it's so been you could uh, hold space in yeah. intense affect part of the issue of Dan I think his therapist he was saying couldn't hold space for him and that's a right. common thing with trauma a lot of people therapists they get traumatized then they blame the client or right. they try to cover it up you right. having dived into your inner hole and integrated your child and adult you couldn't be neutral you can't right you aren't going to mess up their story right exactly yeah and i'm also not afraid of pure empathy either i don't have to defend myself from a counter transference i'm I'm separate from them, but I can be totally empathetic at the same time. So therefore, is it tiring? Of course it is. Um, am, I, uh, am I exhausted from it? No, it's not. I'm not exhausted from it because I feel so deeply for people that struggle, you know, at can I, any age. Can I jump in and ask you to rewind a little bit? 
you said something about the difference between being a mentor and a therapist. And just for repetition's sake, that would help me a lot if you sure. reframe it. And Yeah. Uh, well, essentially, there's no model for being a therapist and being available as I am. So mm-hmm. when you sign up to mentor someone, you pick up the phone. You answer a text. If you're at a dinner party, you excuse yourself. My phone is glued to me. And when I get a text and somebody's having a moment or a really, really bad moment, I address it. And if I can in that moment, I answer the text anyway and and tell them exactly when I'll be back. So that it's it's a trust issue, basically, because as you know, trust is huge trust is everything and trust especially because they're you're telling them you're available and and when you're going to come back so you're making it clear to sort of neutralize those abandonment uh, sensitivity helps me a lot actually yeah juliana has a daughter who she suspects is borderline so did you get this um so did uh, i know I've been reading recently about Marsha Lenahan and her dialectical behavior therapy. And what I learned is yeah. that, oh, the therapists are supposed to be available by phone all the time, 24 yeah. seven. Yeah, it's nice in theory. I have yet to see it. And <laughs> from the therapists? Yeah. yeah, from the therapists. <laughs> and basically because they can't get paid. Yeah. They can't get paid for it. So this therapist who mentored you, who was that? Um, Her name was uh, Patricia Bullard Bates. And she was, uh, she's actually actually no longer working. She's retired. But I ran into somebody recently that, uh, that knows her. And she's doing quite well. She was wonderful for me. She was such a hard nosed therapist. I could not, I, I couldn't, I didn't want to seduce her, number one. And number two, she used to, when I was trying to, when I was trying to talk myself into something that was just completely off the wall, basically she would roll her eyes and she would just look at me and say, really, Mark? <laughs> and it would just make me hit myself and just say, oh man, what am I doing? And so... She was great, but unfortunately, she's not for hire any longer. Oh, well, Allie said time? that she had a link with the same therapist, neuropsychologist. So neuropsychologist, yeah. yeah. So Allie knows her, but she was time? able to call you out and challenge you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you couldn't delude yourself, which is a good no. trait of borderlines. They can. They can tell good stories to to the to other people oh, and yourself. Are you kidding? I could I could I could entertain a therapist for hours and get absolutely nothing done. But yes. that wasn't See, that was not does my nothing. The waste of time. Hmm. And I was very interested in getting fixed. Um, well, you're I, motivated. Yeah, your body shut down. Your eat your finances all collapsed. Yep. You had evidence of the scans that your body was falling apart. 
Yeah, neuropsychologically, I, I was neuropsychotic with the B12. I couldn't think straight. There wasn't, there was not a thought process that was linear. And at the end of the day, the beginning of the day and the end of the day, it was my ability to think, even think my way through the bullshit I got myself into to be able to survive. And I just couldn't do it anymore. It was terrible. So you were it, totally I, worn out. Yeah. Yeah. No more terrible. escapes. Yeah. Now, I've had a weird theory that if somebody hasn't hit rock bottom, is it ethical? if I were to try to speed up their rock bottom by making them suffer more or leading them into more failure because. Yeah, you know, I've thought about that in, on numerous occasions. And usually all you have to do is lighten up a little bit and they'll find their own bottom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you're the one that's keeping them, you know, in one piece, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm going to have to plug my phone in because I'm just about out of juice here. So let me. Uh, All right. Let me let figure them it out. Find their own bottom, or help them find their their own. Yeah, bottom. yeah. You can certainly help them to do that, and it's it's easier said than done, or it's easier done than said, actually. Because, <laughs> uh, and you know, it's funny because when people came come to me and they they think that they want to do the work and then i spell out what that work looks like um then what happens pretty quick how much work it actually is and my sense of it is uh if they're not ready to do the work then i'm not the guy for them because as dan can tell you i'm pretty much a ball buster i call it as it is and i challenge people uh, I challenge them to challenge themselves. I do it lovingly and I do it, uh, uh, I do it um, sensitively, but nonetheless, when the work is there to do, it's there to do. And I'm all in helping. Absolutely. It's not something that's done alone. So what model or how could you summarize the work uh how you guide people, what kind of framework, CBT, uh, psychoanalysis, mixture, it's dive straight into the It's a mixture of all of the above, but it starts with a bit of psychoanalysis because you have to understand what they're defending from. You have to understand exactly what the trauma was. Was it abuse? Was it physical abuse? Was it psychological abuse? Was it neglect? Was it abject neglect? Exactly what is the source of the trauma which then leads you to the nature of the defense? Because ultimately you're going to have to hold a mirror up so that people can see their defenses and see how their defenses are ruining their life. Because in whatever way, however protective they are, they are also limiting their ability to connect with people, having everything to do with trust and all the basic elements that we should have gotten in childhood, which we didn't. So it's a combination um, and, it, and it, everybody's in a different place. You know, some people have done the psychoanalytic work. They know what's going on. 
but they can't see their defense as well. Mm. So, you know, and you have to be wise enough to know where someone is in order to know where to start, where to take them. So you're not going down roads that are a waste of time. All the waste of time. So could this be also framed as uh, getting closer to the core wound, whether or not you identify the defense of the wound or you can get to the wound or the obsession or fixation. That's uh, absolutely. And you can, you can get to the wound. If you've done this long enough, you can look at how someone is defending themselves and you can find the wound through the defenses. So you can do it either way. You can find the, you can, you can define the defenses by understanding the wound, but you can also find the wound by understanding the nature of the defense. Okay, let's see if I can catch up on any of the questions I missed in chat. So I think Holly, you asked some questions. Do you have, do you still want those answered or did you ask them? Uh, it's a stupid question, but like, I know someone that I suspect is BPD. She does go to a therapist, but intermittently when she wants to. Yeah. So I'm wondering, you know, otherwise she is, you know, uh, with her narcissist and they're holding space for each other in their toxic, you know, right. horrific situation. Um, sometimes he lives with her, sometimes he doesn't. So I don't know how to get her to, so do you think she would benefit with somebody like you or, you know, like, cause I've done a lot of coaching with her in, in respect, but I'm, I'm running out of patience. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I hear you. Um, what you would really benefit from somebody like me would be able to size up the situation and, as Deed said, frame it for her and show her where she is, what she's gaining from it, and what she is ultimately losing. Yeah, I kind of did that this week. You did? Yeah. And how did she respond? She says that she knows, you know, she knows. And, and she really, I mean, you know, because I, I pushed her off from, from going down the road of let's go over this another time. Here I am in yeah. another loop and he's at fault. And it's like, what are you getting out of it? And you're getting this out of it. And so do you want to stay in this or don't you? And then she kind of excused herself. So right. what would right. be the next step? And what kind of like, so should I, could I refer her to you or... Like does you're she, looking for, mm-hmm. yeah, does she, I, I mean, I'm happy. And, and for she, your, not, she, she acknowledges that other, that therapists have said, has said to her, yes, she does have a fear of being alone, mm-hmm. um, but she's not, she's very resistant to the diagnosis of BPD and she's not getting a diagnosis of BPD from her present therapist. Right, right. Well, you know, as far as diagnoses are concerned, usually when you step through the nine criteria, Um, and you check off one after the other, after the other, after the other. Once you get to five, you're there. And then if you get more than that, it's a slam dunk. So my feeling is you go through the nine criteria that is diagnostic in nature. And, you know, Gunderson actually had it put in the DSM literally five miles or two miles from where I live. Two miles at the NIH. I live right next to the NIH in Bethesda, 
where Dr. Fauci is as well. At any rate, um, when you go through the criteria and you get the five plus and they agree with you, my next comment is if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it has feathers like a duck, then it's a duck. Now, it's a question of then listening to what kind of arguments that they give you to try and convince you that the duck isn't a duck, but the criteria is the criteria. Now, have but you they tried can, that? Wiggle, or they can discharge the energy by wiggling out. Isn't that what Holly, didn't she, she just? Yeah, she wiggled leave? out, she excused herself, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you mean she literally left? Well, it's a conversation on the phone, so yeah, uh, she ended yeah. the conversation. Well, I've had people, I've had people get up and physically leave. I've just, mm -hmm. you know, it just, it gets too much, they leave. So, what I usually end up telling people that are in situations like that is that you are in a painful situation. You know, it's a painful situation, but apparently, it's not enough pain yet. So not rock bottom. When you're, yeah. When you're in enough pain, you come back and see me. Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, you'll get there. You know, they'll definitely get there. They always do. So, you know, it's just a question of time. If it's six months or six years, whatever, I'll be here. I'm open whenever you're ready. Yeah, I have a question when it's my turn. Holly, are you finished? Um, and the other question is, so do, did you feel that you, that you ran out of supply and that's what drove you to get help? I'm sorry, ran out of what? Supply? Supply, yeah. As you had described it, you called yeah. it something else. I kind of I ran out of validation. Success. The validation addict that you were. Yeah, I, I ran out of the physical and mental capacity to keep all the balls in the air that, that went into my inauthentic persona. And there was just, I mean, the amount of adrenaline, the amount of energy. I mean, if I described to you the kind of life I led, you, you couldn't believe it. And I mean, somehow I was married. I had two kids. One ended up a doctor, is a doctor. One's a trauma nurse dealing with COVID right now. Um, I played USTA tennis. I played basketball three or four days a week. I danced and I danced professionally. Um, I lifted weights numerous times a week. I painted till three in the morning. I didn't sleep a lot. I was running on fumes by the time my metabolism finally gave up. I mean, it was a pretty crazy life. So when my body started falling apart and then my mind was not able to think in a linear way anymore, uh, literally I was flat on my face. And you know what? From the life I was living, that's probably what it took. If I had any hook left to put my hat on, I would have but all my hooks were gone. There was nothing left. So, um, 
yeah and then one thing led to another so first the physical and then but the physical was important because it was so humbling you know i mean i could always sort of survive on my physical capacities but man when that was gone oh it was you know it was it was tough because you have to Uh-oh. You're muted. We don't hear you. Still don't hear you. Oh, no. What happened? Do you hear us? Hit any button. Oh, there you are. Maybe. Talk some more. Yes, you're back. Yeah. For me, um, I had to be brought to my knees physically as well as emotionally and intellectually. I mean, I had to be brought to my knees in any and every which way I kept this whole thing going. Yes, that's a extreme rock bottom, physically, yeah. socially, financially, everything collapsed around the same time. You couldn't yeah. escape. There's yeah. no wiggling. No, and what a blessing, you know? Well, yeah, and I was in such pain physically because pernicious anemia doesn't allow anything to heal. You don't have enough oxygen in your blood to heal. So I was doing all that stuff, you know, rollerblading, basketball, tennis, dancing, you name it, working on my house, building a garden to die for, blah, 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 whatever it is. And it all had to be perfect, of course. Um that was all tearing my body apart because nothing was healing. So I felt like I was a hundred years old. I had tendonitis over my entire body. It was horrible, but that's what it took. So now, as a mentor, are you able to use your rock bottom to remember what it was like that you can sort of contagion your clients to sort of scare them into some sort of Reality yeah. check. So is I that one of the my, tools you can use? Yeah, I use my experience a lot in this regard. And as a matter of fact, um, through COVID, um, it was quite an experience to go through COVID and Trump. He's no sound, sound. No more sound again. What happened? I, I'm not. Are there. You, am I back? You're back. Yeah. Okay. Uh, through COVID, because I couldn't dance anymore and I couldn't go to the gym, of course, I took it all out on the basketball court. And since I'm still in really good shape, I was playing with college guys. Uh, not a good idea. So <laughs> I ended up becoming very injured and re-experiencing all that physical pain again. And I'm talking big injuries like uh, a torn meniscus in my left knee, uh, a high hamstring tendinopathy where my hamstring was ripped out of my pelvis. I mean, big stuff. Um, so I realized in the midst of this that all of my life experience the pain and dealing with pain, both physical and emotional. Oh, we can't hear. 
now you're frozen or not? Maybe it's a Wi-Fi signal. Is that the problem? Where? Oh, there you uh, are. You can meet people where they are. Meet people where they are. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go move on to Susie. I think Susie had some had a question or wanted to be next. Hi, Susie? I just um yes um. I have just started educating myself on psilocybin and mm -hmm. LSD treatments for mental health disorders, sure. um, maybe even bipolar as well. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about borderline personality? Could that help? Could it help narcissistic personalities? You mean psilocybin? Yes. Yeah. Oh no. You're this is Allie. I'm wondering if Mark, hey Dan, can you ask Mark to make sure he closes all the other windows on his phone or laptop? That may be draining um, his bandwidth, siphoning off from it. Uh, Mark, I don't are know you if you can hear. I'm sorry. Uh, well, you're cutting. In and out, closing. we don't know. Mark, if it's your bandwidth is low. Can you okay. close some of your windows, like all of the windows except for the Zoom? Yeah, actually, I got a phone call coming in right now. That might be the problem. Oh, that's why the phone call. Yeah. <laughs> I well, I don't know because it's been you happening. You need to take that. Exactly. Or not. So the question was Is that better? Yeah. So far, it still yeah. says your bandwidth, your network bandwidth is low. That's why I was. Wondering if you could close the windows on your phone. It's gone now. Let me try. He'll work on that. But Susie, your question is if it's sick, if mushrooms can help narcissists and borderlines. Yeah. Uh, um, psychedelics. Thank you yeah, for the technical term, mushroom. Right. It well, it's psilocybin, right. But uh, LSD as well. They've been but using that. That's still regulated. You can't really... There's only pockets that are using it for uh, therapy. Yeah, and even ayahuasca in um, Peru, you know, um, uh, how would those affect these disorders? Uh, <clears throat> okay. We'll take them out of their head. Yeah, I'm back. Mark, okay. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. You seem pretty good right now. Yep. So she was asking about psychedelics, ayahuasca. Yeah, you know, um, boy. From what I've heard, it's pretty fabulous stuff. And I would love to try it myself, except that what it seems to do is it cuts beneath your defenses and takes you to a very authentic place. And so what I was saying is, it sort of depends on what you do with what you learn. In other words, if you are able to see that authentic self beneath your defenses and you can connect with that, does it scare the hell out of you or do you embrace it? And it's sort of what psilocybin does is it speeds up that entire process of what I do when I mentor someone, where we work our way through the trauma, we work our way through the defenses, we work our way through understanding how this is all connected pathways in the brain from childhood to present. And it sort of uh, 
it sort of supersedes all that and takes you to the a place of authenticity. And then the question is, can you be that if you have not developed pathways in order to be it? That's the question. And I don't know the answer to that. I wish I did. No answer. Honest answer. Yeah, that's yeah. good. <laughs> uh, how about this oddball question? I like this pointer from Richard Grant. Mm-hmm. How accurate is this pointer? Ostentatious displays of vulnerability. Ostentatious displays of vulnerability. Ostentatious displays of vulnerability. And a sort of signals. Ostentatious displays of vulnerability. So there's this sort of an overblown selling of vulnerability. I'm about to leave. I'm about to collapse. I might kill myself, but it's not right. overt. It's just these hidden hooks. Is that a common uh, borderline? Well, it's, communication yeah, style? it is very common, and it's and in the moment they really do feel that way. In mm-hmm. the moment, they believe it. Yeah, they do believe it. And so, you know, as a mentor, I have to take all of those seriously because especially if I'm being paid by a family a lot of money to keep somebody alive and moving along, I don't want that hanging on my watch particularly. So I have to be very careful. But what I've found is that if you can give people just a little seed of hope, a little space to travel in, they will drop that idea of needing to kill themselves or feeling so vulnerable pretty quickly. They just can't get there on their own. They can't that's get there. That's the uh, abandonment trigger. You have to exactly. make sure that's constantly neutralized or addressed. Uh, addressed, certainly. Neutralizing it is easier said than done, depending on the circumstance. But certainly, an awareness of the propensity to go there is so important, you know, at all times. I mean, it's, but the, but understanding that that the fear of abandonment takes you to the existential fear of being alone, which is what happened when you abandoned yourself. So- At three or two, yeah. Correct, correct. When At the point at which you knew that you would never be known, you would never be honored, you would never be loved for who you are, that is the point you start creating a false sense of self that you perceive well, more acceptable, more easy to love, all the rest. If a borderline can get triggered to that self-abandonment at two and three that easily, because anything triggers this sort of panic fear, then they're right at the surface of their wound. Oh, and That's actually a positive compared to codependents who have many more layers of getting to their wound. Well, yeah, in a sense, I would agree with that. However, there is so much pain associated yes. with that. It's when, just a giant pit, and it feels yeah. like death yeah. and shame bomb yeah. and spirals. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it's like falling into that dark space, and oh, yeah, it's brutal. Just brutal. Believe me, I remember it well. And more often than not, borderlines will either hook up with either other borderlines or narcissists 
or most commonly they'll hook up, they'll hook up with avoidant personality disorder. And so avoidance will avoidance. guarantee, they will absolutely guarantee that emotional abandonment forever because that is their deepest fear is emotional connection. Enmeshment getting flooded. So they'll abandon right. the borderline constantly so they can right. have the hope so, of not being abandoned. Right. So both, both disorders support each other's defenses. They support the need for the defenses. It's complementary. Mm -hmm. Dan has a question about what, what is the biggest block for recovery for codependence? Well, yeah. And Mark, I, you know, I, I've been at this for years and, you know, done, yep. you know, internal family systems and, and, yep. and, and, you know, hypnotherapy and spiritual men's groups. And anyways, I just like, you know, want to know <laughs> why is it so hard and, and what's, what's the best modality? And <laughs> you mean for, for what's cutting the for, for codependency, dealing with codependency. Yeah, you know it's interesting because the objective in healthy relationships is interdependency. You don't want to be completely independent. You don't want to be codependent. You want to be yeah. interdependent. You want to be able to negotiate in an honest, loving way with yourself and with a partner or with whoever you're in a relationship with. Well, I think. You have to get in the relationship in order to learn how not to do that. So <laughs> in other words, it's not an intellectual process. And I think That's... I even mentioned to you, Dan, these are experiential neural pathways that you've developed that are so utterly maladaptive. So you have to actually learn, you have to teach yourself or you have to have a mentor teach you adaptive pathways for relationships. So you don't set yourself up to be a codependent, okay? And in fact, you're continually addressing not being a codependent. But the only way you can do that is when you have a choice. In relationship. Yeah, yeah. Now, as I think I mentioned to you, Dan, you can do that in any relationship. Uh, Ground zero is going to be intimacy with another woman, of course. But you can begin to do that in a very sincere way in any relationship where you, you're never passive aggressive. You decide never. To, I'm sorry? To show up, to stop. Yeah, yeah being real. Remain present all the time. You know, the, the big healer for anyone and everyone is consistent, balanced, loving, emotional engagement. Consistent, balanced, loving. Let me throw in realistic. Okay, realistic. you gotta be realistic. No yeah. denial, no grandiosity. Consistent, <laughs> balanced, realistic, loving, emotional engagement. That is what if you get that when you're a kid, you will be fine. You will be validated. You will be authentic. You will be able to accept yourself. You will only hook up with people that are fully accepting of you. You'll be good. If you didn't get it, 
that is when all hell breaks loose. Now, what I found as a mentor, basically what I give is consistent, balanced, realistic, loving, emotional engagement. You do not go away. Ever. Consistent. Ever. Yeah. Consistent, balanced. Leaving off the table. Right. Right. Yeah. But now, one also has to be that for oneself. One has to have that kind of relationship with one's self. And then, you know, when you, if you want to attach a uh, sort of a, a, an overarching term to this, it is the definition of unconditional love. That's what unconditional love is, is consistent, balanced, realistic, loving, emotional engagement. That's it. So to, you take it out of the vernacular and you give it a definition and that's what it is. That's what it looks like. That's what it is on the ground all the time. Now, Dan, if you want to know how to be a, not be a codependent in relationship, in relationships, be in a relationship that is defined by consistent, balanced, realistic, loving, emotional engagement. Now, is that easy to find? <laughs> huh, look at that uh, laugh. Yeah. Nice pointer, but Put that there's in nowhere to find it. <laughs> Put it in my yeah. Tinder profile. What's that, Dan? I'm sorry. I'll put it in my Tinder profile. <laughs> yeah, do that. You know, I've been thinking a lot about this, actually, because, you know, I, I want to give away what I found. I mean, it took me 50 years of misery and then, and then another 12 or however many years. It took me a few years of therapy and then another 10 or 12 years to really be able to live what I believe is the right way to be. And I'd love to have a community of people that not only think like this, but they live like this. What a concept. Now- It's lonely, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, dude, it's, it's not lonely because I don't judge people for not going there because most people don't even know what it is how can you blame somebody yeah, for absolutely yeah you know Ooh. so it's it's a curious situation because i'm fully accepting of where people are and i'm very happy i'm i'm very happy with what comes my way But to be surrounded by a community of people that go here, that live here in what I'm talking about in this community, I, I can't even imagine what that would begin to feel like. You know, maybe it exists in primitive communities. Maybe. Yes, tribes, collective yeah. cultures. Yeah. Would you need that borderline to lead their narcissist so that you could have appropriate effect? I'm sorry, could you repeat that, please? Would you need the borderline to leave their narcissistic abuser in order for your work to have an effect? 
Well, you know, preferably if I'm dealing with one person in a couple, I, I want to be dealing with both people. I mean, I tried to get Dan's wife to address her issues. Um, oh. mm -hmm. And that was a difficult, a very difficult place to get to. Um, and indeed impossible. It, it depends on the willingness. It depends, from my experience, it depends on how much trauma someone has been in and whether or not their, their lives are painful enough to want to address the defenses. That's really what it boils down to. Readiness, yeah. Because if the defenses are working, why would they dive into the pain? Because it hurts. It's, you know, Dean, it's a very, the, the anxiety level though, even when the defenses are working, the vigilance and the anxiety that comes from the vigilance all the time. Yeah, fearing if that you can amplify with that with your story and keep them there, then they can get a sort of temporary wake up, wake up call. Right, right, right. But the, the problem is, that the willingness to the willingness to address these things just comes and goes in the in the whim of the moment when things are going well it's like why would i want to when things are going poorly oh my god i really have to so <laughs> you know how it's a question of education to really understand the fact that that living a defended life is not living a happy life and sure yes. i have a lot more you know, when I was flying high in New York, um, there was a lot of money and a lot of everything. But it was never happy. And I always felt like um, it lacked the substance I really wanted. Now, there was still this emptiness inside, but except the adrenaline kept you busy, distracted. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But the emptiness was pervasive and it was. So could we you know, amplify the emptiness of somebody who has borderline or borderline can put attention on that too. Mm, emptiness yeah. to emptiness. Sometimes yeah. I try to do that, but people find mm -hmm. that chaotic. <laughs> right. At least sort of asking the same question, but it's like this long it's really long. I got tripped up in my own thinking. I'm a multiple traumatic brain injury survivor, Mark. And um, I had the good pleasure of working with Dr. Bates. I love her and we still keep in touch. And so phenomenal woman, as you know, incredible, very rarefied individual practitioner extraordinaire. Um, yep. Yeah. And so um, I'm just curious to know, perhaps I can just read the question. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a lot of like lived experience with that personality type um i found my way to this group through struggling with that which i was unable to really articulate and fully put my finger on and i came to discover that i came from a suboptimal family of origin very loving outwardly, and um very loving practically however wounded i'm african-american and from my own research i understand that almost by definition with the um, enslaved experience of my people, we almost all just live with CPTSD just from the trauma. Yeah. And so 
I have chosen to look at my family who is very loving and wonderful and supportive intentionally so however they're wounded and attempting to do that having gone through the Jim Crow era lived through that my parents anyway and I right. live in DC and my parents are pillars in the community and very beloved and have mentored themselves a lot of people standing room only at my dad's funeral dignitary right. there the whole nine yards however they committed medical neglect and didn't really see nor validate the brain injuries that I've had, six of them from the ages of three to 20. I'm in mm. my, yeah. And so I am just within the past, I'm going to say 10 years remembering, holy cow, you know, I didn't even realize all this stuff I've been struggling with was an unacknowledged multiple brain injuries. And I've been really playing catch up. So anyway, long story short, this is my question and I'm not even sure if it makes sense, but um, I'll read it here. And the question reads as follows. What is that bell for you? It's a time counter to summarize, but you you have time. Okay, thank you. Okay, so my question is scrolling through this. Okay, here we are. Okay, would you suggest that the only persons you can truly help are someone, um, I don't even, I'm noticing some typos and I'm having trouble seeing my chat box. Would you suggest that the only persons you can truly help are those who self-identify as being tired of their life, not working, acknowledging that they, they're ready to look more deeply at their unmasked demons and truly um, are ready to do the work Otherwise, their defenses exist like a Teflon shield needing to first be disarmed, allowing their softer selves and steel wills to be on full or fuller display, giving way to disarming the pushbacks, denials, and more. For without these, one could easily deflect, be non-transparent, not be in nor willing to be in a a place of full-on self-awareness and be non-participatory in the process of their own revolutionary insights and possibly improved self-integration and eventual life management, healing and transformation? The quick answer is yes. Um, Wow. You gotta really be ready to go there for whatever reason. You could help someone or not help someone. They'd have to really be ready and do that. Willingness. Well, you know, I I will tell you something curious. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was, uh, I had sort of an interesting history, um, hang on one second. I had sort of an interesting family history because my family too is one of these families. There was the pillar of the community. When my mom died, yeah. there were 600 people there, even though yeah. she was just a housewife, you know, she touched a yeah. lot of lives. Cool. The problem mm-hmm. was that neither, my mom was the single child of an alcoholic father. Mm-hmm. My dad is a, is a astrophysicist and was busy saving the world from the Russians okay. with satellites and missiles and all that stuff. So he was a really busy guy. Mm-hmm. He was raised by Greek immigrants that never learned to speak English and never taught him Greek. So how much okay. emotional, how many emotional neural pathways do you think my dad had for connecting at a deeper level? regardless of how smart he was. Okay. Mm -hmm. So my mom had no tools. My dad had no tools. Basically for my brothers, they're not real sensitive. They're really great guys. 
they've been very successful. My brother, John, was hit over the head by my parents' incapacities. I, uh, who would be an artist and an architect and blah, 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 and all the other stuff I've done, I needed a lot of emotional engagement from mm -hmm. two parents that had no clue how to go there. Not, not, they simply didn't have the bandwidth in their brain because they had never experienced it. So even though I was destroyed by being unknown and invalidated, not only was I not validated, I was invalidated. And so, but I can't, there's no blame because it was just serendipitous as to what my genes created from them and what their capacity to nurture was. Mm. Yeah. That's a problem. Now, uh, it's also a problem then when people are the pillar of the community and they are taking care of so many things, they miss a lot at home. True. They miss a lot. Yeah. Because by the time they get home, they need to make dinner. They need to clean it up. It's time to read books and go to bed. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. But that can be more painful. You were not seen as oh, a side well, thing, that, not intentionally. They might be so busy, then you're just invisible. Exactly. Just exactly. On, as a side, it's like neglect or unintentional Correct. neglect. Correct. And. Mm. I had a lot to say as a child. And which is why when my kids, even as a borderline, when my kids were born, I told myself I was gonna listen at every single freaking word they had to say. Oh. And I'm going to Make up validate whoever they turn out to be. Yeah. And <laughs> even though there was a lot of bad that came along with me, there was that good. Okay, so that mm. sort of compensated. But in your particular situation, I'd have to I'd have to wonder why were the medical things missed? Who who was not listening? Who was not engaged? Yeah. Why were they not engaged? Right, and that's what I struggle with. And the thing is, I have a very highly successful circle around me, and doctors and lawyers, judges. Yeah. And even my godparents, my god sisters, my god sister, one of them is a neuroscientist. Her husband's a neuroscientist, PhD mm -hmm. level. I have another god sister who's a neuropsychologist, and she is both a professor as well as she has her own practice. I'm like, there's no excuse. People were around. I don't understand this. And so I'm wondering, like, how did you graft the scaffolding in your narrative that you literally kind of refabricated did you have to engage this refabrication of your personal story your personal narrative in order to heal that i'm hearing a lot of feedback in order to heal that place within the deepest recesses of your being that kind of existed like the hook and eye you know loops where unless they had been kind of smooth or sloughed off or, uh, I don't know, kind of like abraded somehow, um, things would keep catching it and catching it and catching right. it and catching it. So I'm just curious how, to, because you seem really grounded, ex 
extraordinarily self-aware and as a facilitator myself, I've facilitated groups and taught workshops and that kind of thing. I'm curious as to what your personal self-care looks like in order to allow you to stand almost like a sentinel in service of others. It got broke down to the point of cave, everything fell apart. Then you no, had to get right to a school. And then you had to rebuild it today. over how many years? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, let me mention one thing important here. And this, this is a very interesting mm-hmm. moment with Dr. Bates because yeah. so I'm reading about early childhood development. I'm getting the entire picture of how this thing went wrong, what went off the rails. And you have to understand as an artist for 30 years who was deriving my my ideas and my imagery from from that emotional space from that wounded emotional space i was used to sticking a screwdriver in my emotional wounds every single day every day and that's why i could tell the medical psychiatrist down at georgetown that i was a connoisseur of pain bring it on whatever now In my reading, though, and in my understanding of archetypes, Mm -hmm. when I realized that my parents did not raise me with the archetypes that would have allowed me to attach to my authentic self, Mm -hmm. and as a result, I created a false self that then had to turn into this grandiose, you know, artist, dancer, athlete, architect, blah, 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 whatever it was. I told Dr. Bates, my archetypes suck. For me, they're horrible, what I grew up with. Mm -hmm. I said, I need new archetypes. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and she said, you're right, you do. I can hear her say that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know how she said it too. You're right, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I said, and she said, but you have to create the archetypes. You have the opportunity to create the archetypes for yourself since you are going to be reparenting yourself. That's right. You get to be the parent and you get to be the child and you get to design the archetypes that are right for you. And it took me years. Mm-hmm. of of understanding the nuances to realize that the only archetype that you need is consistent, balanced, realistic, loving, emotional engagement. That is the one thing that's the one thing that you need from other people. Now, it's interesting. Unconditional that, love. What's that? Unconditional, unconditional love. love. Absolutely. The Radical real acceptance. Deal. The those. real deal. And I'll tell you what, I read, uh, I read Greg Beer's book, Real Love, that came out at the exact time I needed it to come out around 2008 or so when I found it. And it's a book, a book about unconditional love. And he has all industry built around it. But I read the original book. And when I read it, I read the first chapter in Barnes and Noble and I said, I need this shit. Oh, oh my God. Just Intuitively, like uh, I knew. Eric Fromm, Art of Loving. Did you read that too? 
that you know, also I did a very oh, long time ago. Yes. Oh. Yeah. In fact, uh, I had read that along in, when I was in college, I think. Oh, that was before. Was so you sort of just studies class. put it yeah. on the side. Yeah. But due so, to time, Allison just jumped in. Let's see. Yeah. Quick awesome. question, Mark. Hi, Mark. It's great listening to you. Hey. You say you have kids? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is your relationship with them? That's all I want to know. I'm just curious. There, it's now. It's great. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But, and it was always very good with my daughter because I didn't have an archetype of how to raise a, a daughter, so I could use my creativity and whatever IQ. And I connected very well with her. She was very similar in me to me personality-wise. Mm -hmm. But my so young daughter's son, good. Sensitive. My daughter, right? Your son. My, are you? But my son was a different story because. Mm -hmm. I had archetypes in my head of how to raise a sensitive son, which uh -huh. were not good uh -huh. now, but, but we maintained a fairly good relationship. We played a lot of basketball together in high school, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But in college, when his stuff started hitting because of what I couldn't give him earlier in life, yeah. fortunately it started hitting just after I got my shit together. Just a, this is all serendipitous timing. So mm -hmm. he wanted to fin finish his degree at home. And I said, okay, Steph, come on home. And I'm happy for you to be here, but you have to help me work on the house because my house needed big time work. Well, we did therapy with, I did therapy with him and mentoring with him as cool. when he came back to be here. So I got a second time, a second chance, a blessed second chance to do what I got wrong the first time. That's wonderful. So, yeah, we have a very close and really wonderful, honest relationship now. That's wonderful. wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. That's wonderful. You're I'm welcome. delighted to hear that. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Now so, we're getting low on time. Can I jump back in there real quick? Mark, you were saying about the archetypes and I know how powerful um, that work is and looking at the family constellations and that kind of thing. However, I'm wondering, are you suggesting that you allow the archetypes to kind of, um, to create almost like this in training mechanism to allow you to kind of be pulled forward by the vision of this archetype that almost was shining before you almost like I'm not sure what the path is but I'm going to beam a path of archetypal essence for I don't know amazing it was path. it was very it was very similar to that because mm -hmm. I didn't remember I didn't have any experiential pathways with yes. any differential archetypes yeah so I'm looking at these archetypes almost like um, something I wanted to not only be aspire to, but something mm -hmm. I wanted to be nurtured by. That's so right. many times I would look for, for what I needed in other people. And mm -hmm. I didn't ask someone to give me everything. I just asked them to give to me what I thought they could. So I had a collection of people then that I would utilize for meeting needs. And it wasn't, 
you know, I wasn't being selfish. These were real relationships, but I simply wasn't asking one person to be able to do everything. Yeah. And, and what I realized was ultimately for one person to be able to do this, mm -hmm. you have pretty much reached Maslow's fifth tier. Okay, you are fully actual. Actual, self-actual. When, when you are able to love unconditionally, when you are able to live in a state of love, mm -hmm. it is not a feeling. You've already made that decision. When you are able to live in that state of love, all those decisions to be in the right archetypes have already been made. I'll give you an interesting example of that. So I've got about a billion things I need to take care of. COVID did not treat me well. And I'm just getting into all of this stuff. And two weeks ago, my wife is picking up some gardening materials to go work with a gardening club here in the neighborhood. And her back zapped her like somebody hit her with a hardball. Oh, no. And... All of the sudden, all of my plans are now put on hold in order to not only help her survive the day, but help her with my grandson because she's my grandson's nanny. Mm -hmm. So all of the sudden, I'm thrust into this new role of physical caregiver. And guess mm -hmm. what, Mark? You're not going to get anything done that you thought you were going to get done for the foreseeable future. Right. This was two weeks ago. Yeah. So the question is then, are you going to be consistent, balanced, realistic, and loving? Are you? Are, are you going to be all of that? Yeah. And you know what? The decision was yes. It was, it was just yes. And not only that, but I'm going to get on my computer and I'm going to study the sacral region where her injury was like awesome. nothing I've ever studied. And I'm going to figure out the massaging. I'm going to figure out the stretches. I'm going to figure Dude. out the strengthening. And we're going to do this. We're going First to fix service. it. Teamwork. Yes. But, yeah. but more teamwork, you transcended your own self-interest. Okay. Absolutely. You said expectation management it's got yes embrace the suck it's not what i wanted but you know what hey it's attitude is everything that's Absolutely. awesome and you All know right. what yeah, yeah. it's about it's about understanding that unconditional is unconditional it, yeah. there's no such thing as conditional unconditionality okay it's either one or the other mm. and if and it, awesome. like i said if you've already decided and this is very, it's a very Taoist idea, actually. And if you guys have not ever explored Taoism, um, no. I recommend um, uh, Wayne Dyer's book. Uh, it, it's, a, his, it's called Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life, okay. um, Living the Wisdom of the Tao. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not an overtly mm -hmm. religious person. I am a very spiritual person. But when I read that book, and it was actually the most easily read of the translations of the Tao that I found. I felt like I was coming home. It was mm -hmm. like, wow, you know, there is so much wisdom in this. And he talks about being spiritual and being carnal at the same time. So okay. part of deciding to live in a state of love 
is also accepting your carnality and understanding that your carnal nature is going to be always working against that. Always. Because is that like reptile brain? I'm sorry? Is that my reptile brain? Is that what that is? Reptile it's brain. Your, it's your mammalian brain. It's yep. your mammalian brain. You actually, there's three. There's the reptilian at the base of the brain and the back, mm. of, the, back of the head. There's the mammalian brain, which is your midbrain. And that's where everything goes wrong. Everything that we're talking about, all the defensive postures and everything else, that's in your midbrain. That's your mammalian brain. There is no IQ. It is only feeling. So all the damage that we have incurred emotionally, it's, a, it's in your midbrain structure. And it's not coincidental that the amygdala and the hippocampus, where most of your long-term memory is, are right next to each other. So they fire synchronistically, okay? Now mm -hmm. your cortex is where your human, your humanoid brain is. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is to always rise your brain activity out of your midbrain and into your cortex, okay? That's where your wise mind is going to be. So, but there's, and I teach people how to do this actually. And it's one of the most interesting parts of what I do. Awesome. That's very like, good. Oh my God, Mark, I just wanted to say that you really hit something clear with me that I've been doing um, uh -oh. recently. Um, the first key word you said was about massaging around the sacral plexus and studying it. And um, I have a lot of uh, emotional scars there that were manifested as pearls in my sacral plexus um, and that was from sexual abuse during childhood and I worked this out years ago and I was told from the doctors from my terrible pains inside that it couldn't be fixed and I've recently dissolved the pearls oh, in my, and it's just it's incredible because this happened in the last two to three weeks and I've been reconnecting now that that energy down there is awake. I've been reconnecting those pathways with my brain and the brain has been flowing this way yeah. instead of this way. It normally just flows up the center and I didn't have any ventral flow because I feel my own brain waves, which is a little weird, but I was, I'll just quickly grab this. Quickly. How do we wrap this up? Hard stop yeah, at seven. I'll, I'll wrap this up really quick. Basically, I had to study the blockages in my brain. So I did this drawing. Nice. To, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'll send it to you. I'll link it to you. Um, mm -hmm. I studied the drawing and I realized where the blockages were in my brain, where the flow was not blocking. She can feel her brain. And I figured it out and I unblocked it and the pearls dissolved. And it's just, it's been an incredible journey this last four weeks, but you just admitted to me, you do the same thing. You, you figure out how to teach people how to do it. And I did this for myself and I'm just like, Wonderful. this exists, <laughs> this, this stuff exists. So let's yeah. get a session on that in the future. Thanks. Hello, traveler. <laughs> It's less lonely in this healing path. So normally we have a formal stop around seven.
And so how do we summarize or wrap this up? Mark, how was this ex experience for you? Well, you know what? I always enjoy connecting with people that are curious and are on a journey and they're willing to discuss and they're willing to share. Uh, it's always a good thing. So I mm -hmm. appreciated being with you guys. Now for your mentoring, do you want to pitch that service or give any more details? Are you open um, to clients? What's up? Yeah. You know what? Um, it's not for everybody because you cut to the chase. Um, yeah, you want people not, ready. I, I am very, com I can be very comforting, but you don't come to me to seek comfort. You come to me to seek authentic answers. Mm -hmm. um, I'm the go forward guy. I'm not the stay in one place and be told that everything's going to be all right. I'm, I'm the go forward and get it done. I'm that guy. So if that's what people are looking for, um, I'm all in. So how would they find you? Uh, I'm happy to uh, actually, can I send you a, uh, well, you know what? Let's just You can send it email. to Dan or what? They can, send me, an e they can send me an email. Okay. It's my full name, Mark. It's M-A-R-K. Dasoulas, D-A-S-S-O-U-L-A-S. -S -S. Okay. All one at AOL.com. At AOL. And I, I can post it in the chat. Yeah, that's nice. cool. Because this is a useful resource because sometimes I run into people who have borderline traits and it's hard to find a therapist. Uh, yeah, and one that- So just having somebody who's going to be honest to a borderline is hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially with all their suicide triggers and all the other stuff. Absolutely. You, yeah. you do provide a resource. Yeah. Any I'm other curious. closing comments? Yeah, yeah, to be honest with you, I've dealt with so many different disorders. I used to be sort of a specialist in borderline and I ran the sport group at Suburban Hospital for years and years before things got closed down. But um, I've dealt with avoidant i've dealt with schizoaffective i dealt with lots of narcissists um a couple of antisocials that's the one that nice. i really <laughs> don't deal with <laughs> that yeah. was dangerous very, very dangerous. dangerous both times yeah so, that's my mother <laughs> yeah and Mark, oh, Mark, Mark, you... i'm sorry Oh, she cut out. Oh, no, she's frozen. Mark, I have a question. Mark, do you agree you, with uh, Sam Beckman that on some level, the personality is some form of narcissism? Did I'm you sorry. That? You just cut out. One more time. Sorry. Do you believe that, like Sam Beckman does, that all cluster Bs are on some level some form of narcissism? Well, there is a false narcissism um, which is attached to the false personality. So you have to understand if you're acting, you've got to put an awful lot of energy behind that. So by definition, you're going to be projecting into that false sense of self, which is going to give you a hell of a narcissism. False self is narcissism. Yes. Ali. Thank you. Three uh, minutes. Okay, cool. Um, are you able to be in connection with your family of origin, Mark? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how does yeah. that work? Uh, it's interesting. 
actually. <laughs> I, Interesting. Uh, my dad is equally emotionally unavailable at 94 as he was at 64 or 44 or 24. He's consistent. Um, and, yeah. and I'll tell you what, he, he's, but he's the nicest guy in the world. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the only problem is you just can't connect emotionally. Um, <laughs> so I fully accepted that. Yeah, My brothers, I have three brothers. Um, mm -hmm. And they're each really, really nice guys. Um, uh, there's a whole story there. We get along good. Everybody gets along good. Um, mm -hmm. Did they pick up the traits of my dad? Yeah, pretty much. Um, do I, quote, forgive them for it? Do I understand? Yeah, I do. Um, so did I used to be bitter about an awful lot of this? Yes, I did. Did I let that go? Yes, I have, because it just doesn't serve you. It's just simple. It doesn't serve you. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, and, and part of being unconditionally loving is understanding that they are who they are for a very particular reason. And if they want to learn and grow beyond that, I'm happy to engage. If they're not, uh, so be it. Yeah, and you know what? I've, and so I was suspecting radical acceptance of self and others, and also understanding that which is beyond your ability to control, direct, and change. Let that stay in their lane, and I'm staying in mine. You know, and so right. operating right. from that place where I think maybe you mentioned interdependence. You know, and so the bottom line is I have that relationship with my sweetheart and tend to the um, piece about the consistent, balanced, loving, realistic, emotional engagement. I always have that with the partners what? in my life, I mean, monogamous. But what I'm saying is, however, I think however. if you touched on something, you touched on something, and this is something that I've suspected, it's almost like don't go to the hardware store for milk, you know? And so the right. bottom line is <laughs> my, my, family like of origin, my family of origin does not have the capacity to hold space for me like that. And so right. I'm choosing to be in connection, being someone with multiple disabilities, cognitive and hidden disabilities. I'm not in a position to go no contact. So I'm feeling like I'm having to love them in this very hybridized form where it's got this almost like permeable membrane, that right. which is not healthy, helpful and serving for, you know, from a mutuality standpoint, Mm -hmm. on that side of the membrane you know what i mean yeah i do and i think that was very well articulated thank you i'm so glad you came to visit with our group you shared so yeah. many rich pearls of wisdom thank you so much and bless yeah, more you. Than thank you. everyone bow down thanks for marks <laughs> expertise the people that enjoyed it and uh, guys you have your info I'm glad I could participate yeah uh, you're a rock star mark we appreciate you so much and well, were, it not for, were it not for your family of origin supporting the midwifing of the magnanimous person that you are the post-traumatic growth could not have been well ultimately that's true it, mm -hmm. it, it is and you know as Dan knows, I've been writing about this forever, and I've probably written a thousand pages 
and what I really want is just 50 good ones. You know, I don't want, yeah. I don't want it to go on forever. I want to cut to the mm -hmm. chase so that what I've learned and what I've been can live beyond me. So hopefully it'll be finished one day. Yeah. <laughs> Good it. deal. Support you. Thank you. Okay, Very let's good. all thank Mark and let him continue the rest of this evening. Yeah, thanks, Mark. You're welcome, thank guys. You, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. I did. I did. Thank you.